desire to do that as a church. We know that nothing happens in our own individual lives, in our life of the church. Nothing happens apart from God moving. And when we pray, we are asking God to work. And I hope as you work through those prompts, you're, you're using them. Uh, first, the idea that's mentioned, and then springboarding into other ideas in your life. Uh, we want to corporately pray together. And if you haven't uh, done the corporate prayer times in the evening, I, I really recommend that you do that. Uh, it is sweet time in praying. Uh, we are not just uh, focusing on circumstantial things, uh, but we are focusing on deep things and praying for our church, our community, and uh, it is a sweet time. So I, I hope that you take advantage of that. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention to God's Word uh, in Matthew um, 4. Matthew 4. And you remember what we've been doing. Let's take a little bit of time to review. We've been seeing in this uh, first section in Matthew, uh, Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom, and really Matthew is presenting Jesus as king. He is showing uh, Jesus as king. All the events, all the circumstances of Jesus' life. But uh, against, he's doing that, Matthew's doing that against the backdrop of exile. You remember from even the genealogy where that traced Israel's history from uh, maybe a low, uh, the, the beginning in Abraham up to kind of a high point with David, and then from David to the low point of the deportation to Babylon, that, that exile because of Israel's sin. And we said that really every, everything, every human being is in exile from the Garden of Eden to this day. Exile because of sin, away from God's presence, away from home because of sin. And we said even the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at the baptism of John, uh, that uh, participating in baptism, uh, that, that uh, John's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the people are saying we need to be cleansed, we need to be changed, we need to repent, we need to turn from sin and self to allegiance to God, and we need to be cleansed so that we can be God's priestly and kingly people. That's what Israel was supposed to do, that idea of the Son of God. It started with Adam as the Son of God, as God's priest and king, and then it progressed through Noah and then through Israel as a national entity to be God's priestly and kingly nation. And then through David as the representative, as uh, the, the head of that nation and the one who stood in for that nation as the son of God, that re responsibility. And so the, going through these waters of baptism, what we said is that was them identifying and showing they need to be cleansed. They need to be made new. They need to be uh, change to be God's priestly and kingly people. But what we saw last week is then Jesus steps onto the scene. He participates in that baptism for what purpose? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus didn't need to repent, but what the baptism did is it showed him as the perfect son of God, the true and ultimate king, the true and ultimate priest, the one who would lead the people out of exile as the Son of God into the new creation. But he has to deal with the issue of sin. He has to deal with the issue of righteousness. That's why he had to come to fulfill all righteousness. But if you think about sin, sin doesn't come from nowhere. It's where does sin come from? Well, if you think about maybe James 1, 13 through 15, James, actually the, the half-brother of Jesus, gives, gives the sequence of sin. He says, desire, one's own desire, internal, 
We have a natural proclivity and a desire for sin, since we're all in Adam as we're born. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Each one is tempted with his own desire, and desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. Temptation comes along and entices our own natural sinful desires to the point where we give in to that. Really, one way you can think about temptation is uh, the, the, the word in Greek is actually, uh, when it has a negative connotation, a temptation uh, to do evil, right? We use the word temptation, but the word itself can just mean testing, testing. And you can think of it like this. Let me give you a word picture. Think of uh, a block of metal, right? Now, blocks of metal, they each have their own melting point. So aluminum has its melting point. Steel has its melting point. And you can imagine putting this block of metal into flames, right? To test it, to see its limits, to see how far it will go. And think about those, uh, think about those flames like the flames of temptation. Each one of us uh, has a, a limit, so to speak. Uh, we, we, we are put into the flames of temptation, and then when we give in to sin, we melt. We melt. And really, you can think of the history of humanity and even those individual sons of God that we mentioned through Scripture, Adam and Noah and Israel and David, and you can think of how each one of them was put into the flames of temptation, and yet each one of them melted. Adam and Eve, of course, seek to be their own independent rulers. They melt. Noah becomes drunk with wine. He melts. Israel grumbles in the wilderness again and again and again, puts God to the test, they melt as that national son of God. David, the king, commits adultery and murders. He melts. Solomon marries foreign wives, accumulates wealth, and goes to other gods. He melts under temptation. So the question is, with that history of all the sons of God, that, that one who has a special relationship with God, a responsibility as a steward king, to be a king and priest for God's people... Given that history and given the fact that God the Father just marked out who's supposed to be the ultimate son of God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, the question, the question that remains to be answered but is answered by our text, is this one going to melt? Like every other son of God has melted. Is this son going to melt? That's the question that we answer coming into this passage. Now, before we proceed, and it's, it's an appropriate time to take a moment, not just for this passage, but for the gospel as a whole, to give you what I'll call a couple of theological primers. A couple theological primers. You see, we've already seen this hinted at in Matthew, but when we think of God the Son, God the Son has been God the Son from all eternity. Uh, the person of the Son has always had a divine nature. But what happened from the incarnation on was that the person of the Son of God, the person of God the Son, added to his divine nature a human nature. And from the incarnation on to this day, right now, as he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, the Son, the person of the Son, has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. In the incarnation, the Son never gave up his deity, never gave up his divine nature. That would be impossible for God to do. 
nor did he give up the use of his deity. We see in the Gospels where the person of the Son does use his divine nature. But here's what he did do. The Son always submitted the use of his divine nature to the Father. He always waited for the will of his Father to act on his divine nature. And what you're going to see today in the temptation is you're going to see that reality played out. And you'll see it throughout the gospel as we continue walking through Matthew. Here's another theological primer for you as we walk into this text. Jesus was incapable of sin. See, unlike our human nature in Adam, where we inherit the corruption from Adam, a proclivity, a desire, a bent uh, towards sin and corruption. You see, Jesus, because he was the virgin-born, uh, God, uh, virgin-born son of God, he had, he had no human father, but a true human nature. He had no predisposition. He was not in Adam at all. And yet he had a true human nature, and he has no love or predisposition to sin like we have. So going back to our block of a metal analogy, thinking of temptation, those flames, uh, putting our block of metal in, and we know the sin happens when, when that block of metal melts, when it reaches its limit. What happens when you have an unmeltable block of metal and you put it into the flames? Well, you know that you can crank the heat as high as you want to go beyond any other metal that you could possibly have, and that metal would experience the full fury and flames of testing and yet would never melt. And what you'll see is that the fact that Jesus was incapable of sin is greatly encouraging to us even as we face our own temptations. And really what you should be coming away with from this passage is the idea that Andre mentioned is prayer, that Jesus is the champion son of God. He is truly human, and he is truly divine, and he is our champion. And that's the idea that Matthew wants you to take away from this passage and that you need to take away this morning. Follow Jesus, the champion son of God, who triumphs over all temptation by Satan. Follow Jesus, the champion son of God, who triumphs over all temptation by Satan. And this temptation that's going to happen comes in three rounds, right? So we're going to look at round one, physical desire, physical desire. Let's look at verses one through four again. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you remember where Jesus was. He was just at the Jordan, probably just north of the Dead Sea. In that area, it's low elevation. You're at the Jordan, you're at the lowest elevation possible. The surrounding area is all wilderness, right? That's where John the Baptist was doing his ministry, but it's higher in elevation. So he goes up in elevation from the Jordan, and the Spirit, we just saw in Jesus' baptism, the Spirit coming upon Jesus. This is the one. This is the Spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah that Isaiah speaks to. And the Spirit leads Jesus up in elevation into the wilderness for the purpose to be tempted by the devil. The purpose of the Spirit taking Jesus and bringing him into the wilderness is to be tempted or to be tested, 
right? Like that block of metal being put into the flames, we need to see, will this son of God fail or will he succeed where all others have failed? To be tempted by the devil, by Satan. Verse verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, why does he mention 40 days and 40 nights? That actually happens, but like what we've seen in Matthew again and again and again, Jesus not only, uh, not only, he, he never does something or something is never done in his life for no reason. He is, he is fulfilling not only uh, scriptures, but also patterns. And you'll remember that Moses, after they crossed, the Israelites crossed the Reed Sea, after they crossed the Reed Sea and were heading to Mount Sinai, Uh, you remember that when they reached Mount Sinai, that Moses went up for 40 days and 40 nights as the representative of God's son, uh, the people of Israel. So what we see here is what's going to happen with Jesus is he is, we've already said this, he has corporate solidarity with his people. He is the stand-in for Israel and yet the leader of Israel as that king all at once. And he is less like this new Moses leading out of exile. We've seen that theme again and again. So he, we see here that Jesus, he's this leader, but he has uh, identity with the people of Israel. And he's like Moses, the one who's to, supposed to lead his people out of exile. And he was hungry. So you can think about this, right? We see here the reality of Jesus' human nature. He has a human nature. The, the, the eternal person of the Son has a human nature, and he experiences the realities of of a human nature, of hunger. He's at his limits physically, we might say, right? He's at his limits physically. So he's at his weakest point, according to his human nature, and that's when we get verse 3, the tempter, the tester, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, what's going on here? What did we just see the Father affirm about Jesus? He is the Son. He is the Son of God. He is the beloved Son. Satan's not doubting that, nor is Jesus. That's not really in question. What's in question here is the implications of being the Son of God. If you're the son of God and Satan knows that this is the eternal person of the son acting in his human nature, then, and his human nature is at its limits, it's it's suffering hunger from this fast, then the implications of being the eternal person of the son would mean that you could act on your divine nature, the same divine nature that created everything and brought it into existence. It would be a simple matter to convert, to transmute stones into loaves of bread. It'd be a very simple matter. So what's the temptation? The temptation is access your divine nature. Access your divine nature to alleviate the pains that you're feeling from your human nature, right? That's the temptation. That's the temptation, And we said that Jesus never gave up his divine nature. He never got rid of it, nor did he, uh, he did use it at times, but he always used it in submission to the Father. And here what Satan is doing is he's saying, use it apart from submitting to the person of 
the Father. But let's see how Jesus responds. Verse 4. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we see Jesus defending himself from the scriptures, but as we've seen before, every time that a scripture is quoted in the Old Testament, there's a greater context. There's a, we're pulling on a link of a chain, and there's, there's a context at the bottom of that chain. So go ahead and turn over to Deuteronomy 8, which is where this is quoted from, Deuteronomy 8. And you remember Deuteronomy, let's just think for a minute, Deuteronomy was written right about the same area that Jesus currently is before the second generation of Israel after the exodus, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, is to enter the land, right? So uh, it's a similar context. And what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy is he is warning the second generation of Israel, don't make the same mistakes that your parents did. Don't make the same mistakes. Have loyalty to God alone. And we see that same language in Deuteronomy 8, which is what Jesus is quoting from. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, Yahweh your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of Yahweh your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And we think about what Moses is referencing here. He's referencing when the manna first came, which was Exodus 16, right after they crossed the Reed Sea. Right after they crossed the Reed Sea, and they said, we're, um, we're hungry, we're grumbling. We, uh, they start to grumble. We don't, it would have been better to stay in Egypt because we don't have food, right? They, they melted under temptation, the temptation of physical desire, a legitimate physical desire. You need food to live. But they melted on, in the wilderness, but God provided manna. He provided bread. But the point of that testing for Israel and the point of the testing for Jesus is, will you, do you see that living by God's word, God's directive, submitting to him, trusting him for his provision in his timing, in God's way, are you going to wait on that? Are you going to say, yes, I have this desire, but I'm going to submit that to the, uh, to the Father. I'm going to submit that to God and trust in him for his provision in his way, in his timing, or are you going to try to grasp it and satisfy that physical longing on your own terms? That is exactly what is going on in Matthew. 
See, Israel and other sons of God, like we mentioned before, failed to trust and to wait for God's provision in God's way, in God's timing. Will Jesus do the same? And he does not. He does not melt. Even though it's a legitimate physical desire, physical need, he holds God's word and God's priorities, God's commands, God's direction higher than even his physical needs. And we could think about how we melt under temptation too. We, we, we don't experience the same level in the sense that I have the temptation to make um, bread out of stones. I can't do that, right? Uh, I don't have a divine nature at all, right? There's none of that. I don't have that same temptation, but we do have the temptation in the sense that do we not have physical desires? The part of being an embodied person is that you have physical desires, physical longings, and the question is, are, are you going to wait for God's provision and God's timing for that physical longing or, um, in his way, or are you going to try to grasp it and satisfy it on your own terms in your own way? Where if you had a need or desire, even a legitimate desire, I'm not saying these desires are necessarily illegitimate, but sought to grab it outside of God's plan or timing or way. I'm sure you and I could think back on this week where we've done just that. We've melted under that pressure, under that testing. But here's how this works. Here's what Matthew is trying to do. Jesus didn't melt. Jesus didn't melt. And why is that good news for us? Because just like Jesus has solidarity, he has that identity with Israel, he is Israel in a person, so to speak, as the king, he is also our king and he has solidarity with us. Or another way to put that, he is the champion son of God, the one who was really human and really experienced temptation beyond what you and I will ever experience, and yet he never melted, which means he knows what we need when we experience those temptations. He succeeded. He succeeded. He is the one who comes to fulfill all righteousness. He is righteous in himself, and he has come to give us righteousness. So that's what we see first in round one. The Son of God wins that round champion flying colors he overcomes the temptation to satiate a physical desire in his own means in his own timing he depends on his father in his timing in his way let's see round two round two testing god testing god round two is testing god verse five Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, think about where we just were. We were just in the wilderness. We're out in the wilderness. And then we just got transported, right? Uh, whether this is a physical transportation or it's a vision, uh, not sure, but that's not the point, right? The point is this is real. This is a real temptation, a real testing that's happening. And the devil takes Jesus. It's really interesting. The devil has access to the most holy place on earth. Did you see that, right? He's, he's taking him to this holy city, to Jerusalem itself. He goes right into the temple, right? The most foul creature in existence has access to this place, right? And he takes Jesus there, and you notice the increase in elevation. Somewhere in the temple complex, whether it's on the portico or whether it's on the temple structure itself, 
he's very high up. Um, the elevation is increased. Why? Because it's, it, it kind of pictures the increase in intensity. The flames are being turned up even as the elevation increases. If he is on the temple structure itself, then that rose more than 150 feet into the air. This is very tall. Uh, it could also be that he's not on the temple structure itself. The language that's used here is of the entire temple complex. He could be on the edge of the Kidron Valley and looking down into it. Either way, he's at a position where if he casts himself down, he's going to die. And the devil says, verse 6, says to him, same sort of language as before, if you are the son of God. That's not really in question Jesus and the devil both know that he is the God, the son from all eternity. And yet what's going on here is that if the implications, if, if this is really true, that you're the son of God, you're the ultimate king and priest as God the, God, the father has marked you out in your baptism, then by implication, you should throw yourself down. And what's interesting here is that this temp temptation gets amplified from the last one because the devil starts quoting scripture. Temptation one, Jesus quotes scripture to defend and to say, no, I'm going to submit to the will of my father. I'm going to submit to his commands. I'm going to succeed where Israel failed. And the devil says, you want to play that game? I can play it too. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. This is Psalm 91, verse, uh, the first part of verse 11, and also verse 12. And what's interesting about Psalm 91, we won't turn there at the moment, but you could read it later if you wanted to. Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection. Uh, it is, if you read it in context, it's uh, he who dwells in the shadow of the Most High. Uh, the idea of being in God's presence and being in his way and what better, more uh, central place could you be than in the temple itself? And then the psalm, psalm goes on to explain, God will protect you. He will protect you. And then we get this language that the devil quotes here. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The one who is close to God and who is closer than God, the Son incarnate on earth, then God will protect you. God will protect you. So just throw yourself down. Just throw yourself down. Now, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the big deal about this? What's, what's wrong with this? It's scriptural. You, you, can, you can do this, right? But Jesus, in his answer, points out the problem, and we'll delve into it a little bit more. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the central issue in this temptation is the devil is asking the son to, to test the father. And what does it mean by that? Well, again, the scripture that Jesus quotes has a context, has a context. Let's, uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy again. Every one of the scriptures that Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy. Uh, before Israel goes into the land. And he is, he is the stand-in for Israel, and he's thinking of himself in those terms. Deuteronomy 6.16, right after the famous uh, Shema, Hero Israel, 
In that same section where uh, Moses is enjoining Israel, show loyalty to God, he says this in Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, what that refers to, again, we have links in a chain, right? The first link is Deuteronomy. The second link takes us back to when Israel tested uh, tested God at Massa, which is in Exodus 17, between the Red, Red Sea crossing and between Mount Sinai, there's another test. So let's turn back to this one in Exodus 17, the second link, so we understand the full context of what is happening here. Turn to Exodus 17 and verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandments of the Yahweh and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand, there, stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? And the key here is it's a similar physical desire that they had with the bread, right? And getting fed, they need drink to survive. But here the emphasis is a little bit different. The emphasis is on their attitude. Their emphasis is on their attitude. The idea is if God just rescued us from Egypt, he did all this stuff, then is he among us or not? Prove yourself, God. Prove yourself and show us that you're really among us which is precisely the same thing that the devil is doing with Jesus in quoting Psalm 91. What he's saying to Jesus is, you are the closest one to God that you could possibly be. We're in the most holy place on earth that you could possibly be. Therefore, according to Psalm 91, you should be able to put God to the test. You should be able to uh, sort of uh, you know, formulaically apply this scripture so that you can throw yourself down whimsically. Let's just do it, right? Put God to the test and he's going to rescue you. He says he will by his word. But here, what we have to understand is that Satan is misapplying Scripture. Did you know that when you misapply Scripture, you could very well be doing the same thing that Satan is doing? You see, it's not just what the Scripture says, but there's a range of application that is proper from the Scriptures. You see, Psalm 91, Psalm 91 is about... As you walk closer with God, as you're walking in God's way, you're walking in allegiance to him, you're following his ways, then yes, you're going to encounter difficulty. You're going to encounter foes. But through all of those things, God is going to protect you 
in the way that he defines it. What's going on here with Satan is that essentially he's twisting that attitude of trust when walking in God's ways to a manipulation of God for one's own whims. That's what he's enjoining God the Son to do. Manipulate the scriptures, force God to prove himself to you, that he is really with you. You see, we see this in the history of humankind. We see this in the history of Israel. All those sons of God in the past, they would, they would use things like the temple or scripture like a good luck charm. Actually, Psalm 91, there's evidence outside of the scriptures from around the documents when Jesus was, was around that people would use this as an amulet, like a magical charm that's going to keep spirits and harm away. They would, would kind of use it in this way. And Israel as a whole would do things like that with the temple. Well, we have the temple. God can't do anything with us, right? He, he, he would, uh, we, uh, and so they're testing God in that way. Essentially, then, what they would do is they would sanitize their own way through Scripture and through religious external forms. Where have you been presumptuous on God to validate your own way perhaps sanitizing your presumption by the use of Scripture. We do this. We do this. We have our own way that we want to go in life, and we essentially say, well, God's behind me. He's not going to let me fail. Uh, I'm going my own way in my own direction. Uh, He's behind me. I'll I'll be fine. Or see the Scripture that God has said in Proverbs or or wherever it may be, Jeremiah, uh, you know, wherever it may be, God's promised to be with me no matter what happens. And then we go our own way and we presume on God. We presume on God. We sanitize our own direction, our own whims. We melt in that temptation to go our own way. Or another way to phrase it, where have you sought to manipulate God to your own ends? Where have you tried to have him prove himself to you? If you're really with me, God, if I'm really a Christian, then this X, Y, or Z must happen. And that is testing God, friends. It is testing God. And it mocks him. It mocks him. Rather than trusting him and walking in his ways, letting him set the direction for your life, in which case there are promises of his provision not in the ways that we demand, but in the ways that he determines. That is the proper way to go. It's the way that Jesus the champion went. Jesus didn't melt. He didn't test God. He didn't try to manipulate God. Rather, he again submitted himself as the son to the father, walking in his ways, trusting in his timing for for when to use scripture, when to use his deity, and that's what we're seeing here. He's the champion. When we melt, we test God. He didn't, and therefore he can help us so that we do not test God in the same way. So we've seen round one, physical desire. We can think of temptations that we experience, that everyone experiences in that way, and Jesus succeeded there. We can think of round two, testing God, being presumptuous on God, trying to manipulate God, even through his own scriptures, And Jesus succeeds there. And we've got round three, which we'll call satisfaction apart from God. Satisfaction apart from God. Look at verse verse 8. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So think of the geography again. Think of the setting, right? We moved from the wilderness, then we moved up in elevation to the city and to the temple. And now we've moved up again to a very high mountain, to a very high mountain. And that language, a very high mountain in the Old Testament scriptures, it's usually some sort of vision that happens or a vision in connection with the ultimate end of time where we see all the peoples of the world streaming towards this very high mountain in Jerusalem where God and his Messiah are reigning over all. And even the language that Satan uses here of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory That is messianic language. You see, we read Psalm 2 last week, and at the ultimate end of history, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory do belong to Jesus. They do belong to Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate, ultimate king, the ultimate son of God, the Davidic king who inherits the Davidic throne over all, he will have all kingdoms of the world under his rule. And all of their glory, this language is from the Old Testament, will flow into Jerusalem. And notice, so in a sense, uh, this, the devil is saying, uh, well, uh, look, at, look at all this. This is yours, right? All of these things I will give to you. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And this is uh, different than the way the last two temptations were phrased, right? The last two were, if you're the son of God, you should do this. Here, what he's showing Jesus is, here are the things that belong to you, and you can get them right now if you fall down and worship me. What's the temptation here? If these things already belong to Jesus, what's, what's the devil's temptation? It's a pretty bald temptation if you worship me. Well, you remember what we said at the end of last week when the father identifies the son. You are my, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That son language is from Psalm 2, but the rest of that language is from Genesis 22-2, where Abraham sacrifices his son Isaac, and also from Isaiah 42, where the suffering servant is introduced. You see what Isaiah and even the rest of the Old Testament alludes to the fact that that the ultimate Davidic king will not inherit his kingdom until he goes through suffering. Suffering for the sake of his people. Because really what the devil is hiding here is that the current, when he shows Jesus all these kingdoms and their glory, at that time they are sinful, aren't they? They are corrupt. Uh, they, are, uh, they are in opposition to God. So it's like the devil's offering to Jesus what belongs to him, but what, when Jesus will rule over all kingdoms in their glory, they will be purified. They will be purified from sin. There will be no corruption. People will be flowing to Jerusalem because they love God. And so what the devil is offering is essentially a twisted version of what Jesus already has, but what he's offering is you can get it right now if you fall down and worship me. Is this a legitimate offer? I think so, because what we find from the rest of the scriptures is that when Adam fell, he essentially ceded his authority to Satan. Satan is called the ruler of this age, of of this world, Who's in charge ultimately of the world and what's going on in a, in a limited sense under God's ultimate sovereignty and reign? 
Satan. Could he have done this? Yes. If Jesus would have sworn homage to the arch enemy of God, then yeah, he could have turned it over to Jesus. So essentially, he's trying to get Jesus to shortcut and not suffer, not submit to his father's plan once again. And yet we see the champion, verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, be gone. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, in all of Israel's history, we can think of times and times again where where Israel, uh, even the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai, they turned from the allegiance to the one true God, and they sought to worship something else because they thought that that would give them satisfaction in their timing. The devil is tempting Jesus. You can have satisfaction. You can have what's rightfully yours in your timing, apart from God, if you just do homage to me. Really, in a lot of ways, this is the same temptation that happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember what Satan tempted Eve with? You will be like God, knowing good and evil, when God had already said in Genesis 1, he created them in the likeness of God. It's the temptation, a twisted temptation of uh, what you have already been given by God, but not submitting to God's timing. It's the claim for independence, independence for God, from God to accomplish your own ends, rather than dependence on God to satisfy you in his own timing, in his own way, and with himself, ultimately. But Jesus succeeds. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God in him only shall you serve. The son submits to the father and relies on the father. And we see the victory, the ultimate victory here in 11. Then the devil left him for the time. He left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the angels that were promised in Psalm 91, they do come, don't they? But they come in God's timing, in God's way, as Jesus submits to the father. And they're ministering to him. They're taking care of his physical needs, his hunger, evidently. That's what's going on here. So how do we think about this? How does this help us? What Matthew wants us to take away, he wants us to see the champion. He wants us to see this this unsinnable, uncompromising champion, son of God, but not disconnected from his people. Sometimes people think uh, or say that, well, if Jesus couldn't sin, then that doesn't help me because I can and I do. And so how does that help me? Listen to this quote from a fellow named Donna McLeod in a book called The Person of Christ. And he helps us meditate on how this passage, seeing the champion who can't sin, who can endure the full fury of temptation, can help us. We must be careful not to misconstrue the effect of Jesus' sinless integrity at this point. Far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation, it involved him in protracted resistance. Precisely because he did not yield easily and was not, like us, an easy prey, the devil had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources." The very fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of the temptation's ferocity until hell slunk away 
defeated and exhausted. Against us, a little temptation suffices. Against him, Satan found himself forced to push himself to the limits. We know we fail far lower than a threshold than Jesus. We melt so easily. But here's the thing. What do we do in seeing that? And here's where's Matthew driving us. Jesus is victorious, which means that he can fulfill all righteousness in the face of our failure and temptation in two ways. First, he has, Jesus, the Son of God, the champion Son of God, has the lived in flesh human righteousness that we need counted to us to be God's approved sons and daughters through faith in Christ. Think of those people being baptized by the baptism of John. We're, we're in their shoes. But Jesus is the approved Son of God who succeeded. And since he succeeded and is identified with his people, we get to inherit his righteousness through faith and union with him. Secondly, secondly, Jesus frees us from the power of sin and temptation so that we don't have to give in when we are tempted, but can walk righteously. The fact that Jesus endured the full ferocity that hell could offer in tempting to sin means that when we are tempted, we don't have to give in. Before knowing Christ, we have to. We're enslaved. We don't have a choice. We're enslaved to our sin nature. We're enslaved to our desires. But in Christ, in union with him, he has given us the power through his spirit to overcome temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 talks to this. Romans 6 talks about this. And even more than that, when we are being tempted, when we are tempted to give in and to melt, Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about because the son had a human nature and he experienced these things, he sympathizes and can help us and can aid us in temptation. When you face temptation today, you will, and this week, you will, remember the champion son of God who succeeded and knows what you need to resist and will give you what you need to resist fully through his Holy Spirit as you labor against temptation. Follow Jesus, the champion son of God, who triumphs over all temptation by Satan. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the champion. We thank you that you never melted. Lord, you were, we thank you that you were unmeltable. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't succumb to sin. And that is good news to us because it means you've experienced the full fury of temptation in every way that we experience it. But beyond that, which is good, because it means you can help us when we are tempted by lesser things. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for melting so often, for going after lesser things. Help us today and help us this week when we encounter temptation to resist firmly using the scriptures and looking to you, looking to you in faith, looking to you in dependence. And we ask that you would help us as our champion, as our representative as the ultimate son of God who's making us into your kingly and priestly people to serve under you and we we rejoice in that 
Lord, if there are any here today who do not know you, who have not been brought into relationship with you, who are just enslaved to their passions, I pray that you would awaken them and they would see how good you are, Lord Jesus, and they would repent in trusting themselves to you. Lord, help us this week. We love you. We thank you for this, your word. In Christ's name, amen.